activism is being led by your values to purposeful action in the hope of making the world brighter for others. And when you have that, suddenly activism becomes very broad and it includes so many people who are doing so much amazing work to try to help make the world brighter that may or may not include protesting or marching or doing something. There's lots of other ways to be an activist. Activism is not a bad thing, and it's time we stop treating it that way. There are a lot of forces that have weaponized activism so that it feels untouchable or tainted by people with responsibility for others. Now, the impact of weaponizing activism is chilling and can leave you feeling judged and questioning yourself so you don't live and lead your unique purpose and instead just second guess and stay quiet. Leaders who embrace activism in themselves and others are some of the most hopeful people I know. And this hope is not a Pollyanna hope, but a scrappy hope that is gritty and focused. Now for me, owning your activism is not about rigidity, obsession, or tunnel vision, but a commitment to doing the inner work so you can play the long game of making the world a better place whatever that means to you. Owning your activism means staying the course of your vision and mission while embodying the qualities of an unburdened leader. You choose hope over cynicism. You consistently work on identifying your own burdens and doing the work to release them instead of lead from them. You deepen your capacity for vulnerability and all of the discomfort it brings while staying true to your values and your integrity and you grow your capacity to cultivate a trauma-informed culture that supports change for all. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better, more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Leadership comes in many forms, and so does activism, and both are not limited to their common stereotypes. So if you're a leader who embodies activism, you're moved by personal convictions that see beyond yourself and the bottom line. You boldly desire to make intentional change that will impact another person, your family, where you work, our planet. And I'm hard-pressed to find a leader around me who does not hold these desires. So when activism is seen as a negative word, it supports the status quo. And making activism negative plays upon your fears of being misunderstood or being seen as too much or too disruptive. And it's so easy to respond to these fears by quickly defaulting into silence and complacency. Now, Phrases like activist judge or activist press not only demonize professions, but they dismiss differences and challenges to power. But that's the point, right? So those in power are just scared of losing it. So they push back on the desire for change. And when we other activism, we shut down innovation and change. And we also squash courage and connection. So let's be clear activism often involves being overt about your agenda. But when is it expected that we don't have an agenda? I mean, really think about it. Neutrality is a myth and another way to not take ownership of your impact. 
our mission, values, vision, goals we lay out for our work and life are all about our agenda and our activism. Clarity on what you stand for is as much for you as it is for those you're leading. I think there's something immensely freeing by owning our values and desires for the world we want. Sure, it can feel a little scary and most definitely vulnerable. And when we do the work to not be weighed down by our burdens, we can move through the fears and increase our capacity for vulnerability so we can own our activism, not as something to be ashamed of, but as a beacon for our meaningful work in life. Now, my guest today, she wrote a whole book reframing activism with a more holistic lens that is inclusive and truly inspiring. She's given us a roadmap on redefining and reclaiming activism in an aligned and meaningful way, pushing back on those who want to use activism as a tool to silence. Now, Karen Walren is a lawyer, leadership coach, and activist. Her work has helped thousands of people around the world find purpose and meaning in their own work. And as a photographer, Karen traveled through Africa with the One Campaign, an advocacy organization committed to the prevention of extreme poverty and preventable disease. Karen currently serves on the board of directors for the Houston Coalition Against Hate. She's the author of The Lightmaker's Manifesto and The Beauty of Different, and also a contributor to the Disquiet Time and Expressive Photography. Karen, her husband, and their daughter live in Houston, Texas. Now listen for Karen's honest reflection around receiving after losing her home to Hurricane Harvey and what emotion overwhelmed her the most. Pay attention to the two key factors we all need to have the endurance to stay the course in our activism and our meaningful work. And notice what shifts in you as you listen to Karen's reflections and how she leads herself when anger and rage show up. Now, please welcome Karen Walrand to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Karen, welcome. Oh, what a thrill it is to see your face and be here with you. I'm really excited to be a part of this. I cannot wait to dig in. We have a lot to cover. So I want to start by taking you back. I think it's been four and a half years, which is a little trippy, but it's almost four and a half years ago that you lost your home in Houston, Texas. Yeah, I did. uh, And just about (laughs) everything you owned to Hurricane Harvey, right? And I remember religiously following your Facebook post updates as you gave a window into how you were navigating this looming reality of what was happening in your real-time rumble with whether to stay in your home or whether to leave as the floodwaters were literally rising. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can take us back to that moment you decided to leave your house. Like, what were you feeling when your husband and your family dog waded (laughs) out into the rising floodwaters to reunite with your daughter? Yeah, that was a crazy time. (laughs) You know, it's such a, it's such an, now that there's some distance, right? Because it's been, like you said, almost four and a half years now that, that that happened. It was the end of August in 2017. Looking back, I'm sort of incredulous that we went through it, right? Like, like I, you know, it seems like so crazy. And I do remember at the moment where we were wading through the water, I do remember at that moment thinking, I'm not entirely sure I believe this is happening to me because I've seen images like this on the news 
and this happens to other people, right? Like that's sort of the thing, like it, it looked so familiar because I've seen flooding in different parts of the world and people sort of with all their worldly belongings on their back trying to get somewhere and thinking that's awful, but also it feeling very sort of foreign, right? Even if, you know, it was like, even if Katrina, which is, was just a few hours down the road from us, right? So, so it, hindsight makes it feel a lot worse mm. than what I was feeling in the moment. What I was feeling in the moment was literally, we got to get to our kid. And it wasn't, it wasn't grief. It wasn't anything like that. That came later, right? In the moment, it was actually, I've just got to get to my kid. We've just got to get safe. I want to make sure that my husband's safe, that my dog is safe, that my daughter is safe, and I'll worry about what to do next later, right? Like, like it was literally a very moment by moment kind of thing. And, you know, and we were, you know, it's so funny because you say that you were following along on Facebook. And a lot of it was because in the moment, I kept thinking, I know this is bad enough that it's making national and international news. But I suspect that what the media is showing is the absolute very worst of it, even though I was going through a really bad time. Yeah. And so I want to make sure that the people who I know, and I have a very curated Facebook friends, like I, I the people who I friend on Facebook tend to be people who I, I've met and I know in real life. And I thought these people are going to be panicking because they're actual mm. real friends. So I want to let them know that whatever you're seeing on the screen, it's not as bad for us. I mean, even as we were losing our house, even as we were waiting through, like, I'm like, but we're good. Like we're, you know, and honestly, even to this day, I think, you know, we were hearing stories of people leaving like grandma in wheelchairs behind in the flood water oh. or people going into diabetic comas because they'd lost power and they couldn't keep the insulin cold. Right. Like there were, way worse stories than what we were going through. So we kept thinking, I mean, yeah, we have to wait through water, but we have a place to go. People are waiting to stay, you know, friends are taking us in. Like we're not homeless. Like we, the whole time I kept thinking there are people who are dealing with far worse situations than we're dealing with. So it never really felt in the moment, like, like, oh, you know, this is the absolutely rock bottom. Like, it never felt that. It still doesn't feel that way, weirdly. It's, I mean, it was definitely a challenging time in our, in our family, but I never felt like this is it. We're, we're, we're ruined. This is the end. Like, even though, yeah, we lost our house, we lost everything in it. We lost a lot, but I never felt like, oh, this is, we'll never come back from this. That never, ever entered my mind. I mean, there was an immense amount of loss, but there's also sounds like, I don't know if detachment's the right word, but it was, it was almost like we just, we're just in the moment, take it as it is, but there wasn't catastrophizing, but water no. was rising. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was too. a catastrophe, right? Like it definitely, but it's so funny because I remember after the days after a friend of mine called me and was like, okay what do we, what do you need? Let, we want to send you things. What, you know, your friends are asking, what do you need? And I was really like, I, we don't need anything. Like I was really sort of, this is embarrassing. Don't, I don't need anything. There are people who are literally dying out here. I don't need anything. And it was funny because at one point she goes, okay, Karen, like, obviously it's not like you're homeless. Well, actually, well, 
<laughs> exactly. We both sort of fell out there. I'm like, you kind of are homeless. And I was, and it was the first time that I sort of was like, oh yeah, like we actually are hope. Like we have to go find out how we're going to live. And so, the, and then I remember weeks later, a friend of ours was a friend of ours was trying to help us muck out the house and sort of salvage what we could, which was, you know, like some plates that had been on high shelves. And, and at the end of it, I looked at the, what we had salvaged and I was like, see, there's lots here. Like, we're not so bad. And my friend looked at me and she goes, this is pretty bad, mate. You don't have anything, right? She's she's a (laughs) Scottish friend. And she was like, this is pretty bad, mate. Like, it's it's not that good. So (laughs) it's really interesting. I don't know if it was sort of like survival for me or what it was, but but yeah, there was never, never a time that I thought, let's just throw up our hands and give up. Is there anything else that we would see that you did not share publicly when you were doing that real time? Well, so my husband... So the water stayed in our house for about two weeks before, oh, wow. before it receded. And, and that's when it's kind of started hitting, right? Like after the storm had passed, but the damage is still there. And he would wade into the house every day and try to save what he could. And he did a video walking through the house, talking about, you know, showing what you're saying. He's literally, and the water by then is, you know, it's dank and it's smelly and, Things are disgusting and things have floated away. So the house, it looks like a ruin because things are floating from room to room and and it was just gross. And he's cursing the entire time, right? Like he's like, I can't believe this effing happened. And he's like really, really cursing. And I've, I recently watched it the other day and, and it got me. And I didn't share it. Like he did it and he was like, look at the video. And he shared it with me. And there's no way I would have shared that on because it was bad. And, mm-hmm. and even watching it, I was like, Oh, wow, this is, yeah, we're going to have to rebuild, right. And we knew then that the house was going to have to come down, there was no way to save the house. And, and I didn't share that. <laughs> I didn't share that part. And we probably would not have shared it. You went through a really long season of receiving mm, after gosh. losing everything you owned. I'm curious what impact that experience has had on how you lead yourself and others. That's such a great question. Well, what it taught me was that I don't receive well. (laughs) Like it's really, really hard for me to ask for help Mm. still, still. And uh, the same friend that said, well, it's not like you're homeless. Well, actually you kind of are like she actually, because I was like, I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't need it. And I remember her saying to me, Karen, your friends need to help you. And it was the first time that, that I was like, oh, of course, if I were in their situation, I would feel hurt if my help Mm. was rejected, right? Like, you know, and it was that, that was the only time. And I literally talked to her, I remember, I was like, okay, here's what, because she wanted to organize an Amazon wish list or something like that. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what, organize something. I don't want to know what it is. I don't want to know what's on the list you guys brainstorm what you think we need because I can't, I can't look at it. Like that's going to be too hard for me. It's going to be really, really tough and be sure that people said, make it clear to people. I didn't ask for anything. I, you know, like I was really, really quite like upset about it. Um, Now looking back, I mean, I don't know that I'm any better at receiving, honestly. I mean, if I'm totally Frank, but I am definitely so grateful for everything people did. And I know, 
I am far more activated to do something when somebody needs help, even if they don't think they need help. I am far more likely to go, there is, you know, to our mutual friend, Brene Brown, what does support look like? How can I support you? Because I know despite my reticence to accept it, it meant everything. It meant everything to me and to Mm -hmm. my family that people did reach out, right? Like that. Did you let that sink in? Like the how you just got loved, love bombed and cared for? Well, I had no choice because my, (laughs) literally my, well, that, but mostly like two or three days later, my post office box was just inundated with just, and, and also it was sort of a gift that I didn't ask for anything because it was really sort of lovely how thoughtful people were because it was almost an indication of what, like, I, of course we got things like bleach and, that, but we got things like my daughter who plays guitar, we got so many guitar picks that she will never have to buy a guitar pick another day in her life. Right. Or just huh. sort of the really, the, the things that were really clear that these, these were people who, who knew us and, you know, things that were funny things that I got probably five, coloring books that were curse words right so like de-stress coloring books where you you know so they were just these really sweet thoughtful I'm thinking of you gifts that were just so lovely and so kind and when I I mean we had borrowed a friend's pickup truck because our car we lost our cars our cars were in the floodwaters as well and the bed of the truck was full and we had to keep making trips back to the post like people I, of course, yes, I let it wash over because it was just in my face how much people cared and were concerned and wanted to help and were so generous. It was, I mean, I mean, I met, I actually mentioned this in my current book that my overwhelming emotion from that time is gratitude. Like there's nothing, it's not loss. It's not even grief. It's just the gratitude of people being just amazing. People are amazing. People are amazing. And it was, it was a gift to be able to have a time in my life where I could witness it, right? I was the recipient, but I I would not wish a hurricane or a flood on anyone. But I do wish that everybody on the planet could have a moment where Mm. they could see, you know, it's sort of a, it's a wonderful life kind of moment where you see people sort of galvanizing to help you. you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a real gift. Is there anything that's any echoes that are still tender from that time? No, not tender. Although there are, there have been, so for example, I'm a pretty avid photographer or I have been, but since that time, I really have to struggle to pick up my camera and I'm not sure where that comes from. You know, before I, before the flood, I would shoot every single day. Like there was not a day I didn't pick up my camera. Now I, even though photography continues to be a source of joy for me, there's something about like it feels like, oh, I haven't shot in a while. It's been a month. I should probably pick up the camera. And I'm not sure what that is about. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what that's about. But, but that's something that I know is a little weird. But overall, no. I mean, we're in our new house, and my daughter's thriving, and and our family is closer than ever, having endured it. So for the most part, it's actually turned into a gift all round that what happened, mm-hmm. which That's I'm powerful. very privileged to say, because that is definitely not true. I mean, we still have houses that are have remained abandoned since that time on our street, right? It's oh, not, really? it's not, 
it is a great privilege to be able to say that because that's not true for any for everybody that was affected at that time. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. You, you touched on a couple of things uh, that you do. You are a multi-talented leader. You wear many hats. You're a trained engineer I and am, lawyer. Yes. Yep. You're a photographer. Yep. You're a leadership coach. Yep. You are a deep creative and an author. Like Yeah, crazy, right? Yeah. You have don't, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I can relate to that too, Karen. <laughs> I can definitely relate to that too. And we'll, I'll let you know. We'll, we'll figure it out when we enter on, on as we breathe our last breath. But sure. you have a new, new book that came out and I want to get to that. But first, I want to give a shout out to your first book, The Beauty of Different Observations of a Confident Misfit. Now, yeah. our copy here in the Ching household is well-loved as my daughter and I have gone through the pages on repeat over the years. Oh. And that book has been an important catalyst of many conversations as my daughter is rumbling with her feeling different as she's navigated her autism and her world. And so I'd love for you to say from your perspective or unpack a little bit more, what's a confident misfit and how would we recognize those qualities in ourselves and in others? It was funny when I wrote that book, the title was the easiest part of writing the book. Like for some mm -hmm. reason, when I was thinking about, you know, I, I want to do a book where I photograph all these different people and have them share their stories. And especially people who may have a trait about them that the world would say is a fault or a flaw, but they've turned it into their superpower. They've turned it into something that actually brings them joy or that they sort of lean into as the thing that that they're most proud of. And the confident misfit came about because I am an immigrant. I'm from Trinidad. And I moved back and forth between Trinidad and the United States a lot when I was growing up. And, you know, we kids learned how to adapt really well. So when I was, when I was here in America, I would grow my hair out. And like back then it was Farrah Fawcett's flips. So I would flip my hair and wear you know the jeans and the whatever the heels and then as soon as my two years later my dad would get transferred back to Trinidad and I would get rid of the American accent and I would go back and start talking like a Trini I would cut my hair off I'd wear a uniform to school you know and I was completely Trinidadian and then two years later I'd come back to America and I'd flip back into an American accent and so I had really sort of chameleoned my way through life and that sort of continued as an engineer and then as a lawyer, and I was in the energy in industry, and I would go, okay, what can I do to fit in? And the truth <sighs> is, as an engineer or a lawyer in Texas, Houston, where I live, like diversity in the energy industry meant like a white guy from Oklahoma and a white guy from Louisiana, right? Like, there just wasn't. So what was I trying to do? Like, how, there were, no matter how I try, I am never going to walk into a room and people look at me as a white guy from the, the southern US, right? And it really sort of made me realize this is ridiculous. Like, the only thing I can do is show up, work hard, do the best I could, stay in my integrity, and be who I am. And so that's, for me, where the confidence came from, right? For me, it, it had a lot to do with race and gender and nationality and realizing it was just too hard. It, the work was just too hard to try to blend in. Like, it was just too difficult. So for me, it was just, I mean, I give up, right? Like, I, I can't do this anymore. And that's probably true for a lot of people who feel very different. It's at some point, 
they just have to be like, well, this is who I am. It's too difficult to try to be something that I'm not. So, you know, a lot of people, when I wrote that book, kept saying, would you write it for, because you write one for kids. And I never, I, I never felt comfortable doing that because I do think that some, I mean, I think kids love it. And I think it's a book that definitely like teenagers, there's, I mean, there's a couple of F-bombs or something in the book. So you might not want your very young children to read it, but, but, you know, for teenagers and, and that kind of thing, I think it's a book that will resonate with them. But I also feel like some of that becoming a confident misfit is sort of hard earned. Mm. Like you have to kind of go through life in a certain way and get For really sure. comfortable with yeah. that. So I don't know how, you know, as an adult, I would write to kids going, oh, don't worry about the fact that kids tease you or, you know, like, like that's, yeah. that's a hard sell, right? So, but hopefully, like your daughter, hopefully that people start to get to the idea where, you know what, it's harder to be someone else than to be who I am. So how do I get comfortable with how, who I am? Like what, what would it take for me to do that? And that's really, I mean, that's the work, right? That is the work. That yeah. is the work. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And so I want to to shift towards your newest book, yeah. The Lightmakers Manifesto, How to Work for Change Without Losing Your Joy. I, I told you before I started recording, I have been recommending this book. I have been reading it to clients because I think a lot of people are rambling with how to show up. And there's this sense of activism that it means like you're like overextended, you're passed out, you're exhausted. Sure. It's like sure. full body, full soul sacrifice, which so not helpful. And and so, so a part of the culture of white supremacy, let's just burn out and, you know, <laughs> yeah. all in and all out. But I, I'd love for you to talk about how this new book idea found you. Yeah. So thank you for asking that question. I would love to say that I had a muse inside of me that was just crying out. And I had been an activist for so many years and my wisdom needed to be shared. Like, and that is all complete lies. What actually happened was I had, you know, I'd read the first, I'd written the first book and I had contributed to other books. And this publisher became familiar with my writing and contacted me. And it was really funny because they happened to email me like January 2nd of 2020. It was like right at the beginning of the year. And I had normally, I normally I would have ignored the, the email. Like it was this, you know, I'm with this publisher and I'm really interested in perhaps you writing a book for us. And normally I would have probably deleted it. I'd have been like, okay, I don't know who you are. I don't know this. But that year, 2020, I thought I picked two words for my year and it was bold and experiment. And I thought, oh, wow. if I'm going to choose these two words, I will respond to this email. And so we set up some time to talk. And this, the woman said, uh, Valerie, God bless her. She said, we are looking for a book on the intersection of joy and activism. And we think you could be the one to write it. And because bold and experiment, I was like, yes, I could totally write this book. And then I hung up and went, I am not the person to write this book, right? Like, like, why would I do this? I'm, and in my mind, I said, I'm not an activist. I mean, sure, I've done some marches. Sure, I've traveled to Africa with, you know, like, I've done this stuff. But activists are people who stand in front of tanks in Tiananmen Square. Activists have police dogs set on them. They get arrested. They're tear gassed. And I've not mm. done that, right? So I literally was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But the first book, The Beauty of Different, I had interviewed people and I loved doing that. And I thought, well, let me think about who do I know 
that I could interview who I think of as activists. So the first person was Brene Brown, who was a very good friend um, of mine. And I was like, okay, I could interview her. Um, and then I thought Tarana Burke, who is the founder of the Me Too movement. And she's a friend. And I'm like, I'm sure Tarana would let me interview her. And I came up with a list of people and then suddenly realized that all of these people, while undoubtedly activists, and who may have been in situations in the past where they've marched and, and you know, had police dogs on them, but but they're not known for that, right? Like I, they, they're not known to be people who put themselves in harm's way. And so I realized there's a there's an issue here, right? Like for some reason, I'm willing to elect, call them an activist, but I'm not willing to call myself an activist. So there's something about the definition of activism that needs to be unpacked. And so that's really where I started. I started like thinking about who could I interview and how could I unpack what activism is. And what I ended up coming up with was that activism is being led by your values to purposeful action in the hope of making the world brighter for others. And when you have that, suddenly activism becomes very broad and it includes so many people who are doing so much amazing work to try to help make the world brighter that may or may not include protesting or marching or doing some, there's lots of other ways to be an activist. So, so that's how it happened. I really appreciate that definition. It's a, it's a needed container that I, I, I've been in active politically since I was little doing campaigns in the neighborhood to nice. working in the Senate. So I feel like anyone who shows up, whether you're in the limelight or not, if you are pushing forward something you believe in, that yeah. is, that is true. So I just love the language that you put around it. And you also started identifying in your book, these qualities that contributed, like how to work for change without losing your joy, which is so timely right now. And there's two that really stood out to me and even had one of those put down the book moments and went, whoa, and <laughs> had to sit on that. And one of the, the first I want to start is looking at a passage you wrote on integrity. Yeah. And I'd love for you to read that. And then we can unpack that a little bit more. Okay. Yeah, sure. I'm honored. Okay. So it goes, so I've entered more and more into an activism space with my work, and I've come to value a higher standard than authenticity. Instead, I go for integrity. Integrity is much larger than authenticity. It encompasses trustworthiness. It implies a moral code. It doesn't have the airbrushedness or works the bear-it-allness that authenticity often <laughs> connotes. Rather, it inspires an adherence to that moral code. I think integrity, it challenges us more than authenticity does because it requires us to be mindful of our best selves. It's less about how others perceive us and far more about how we think of ourselves. And when it comes to activism, integrity calls for us to stand our ground about what we believe. This may sound easy, but it can be the hardest part of activism. Integrity means staying the course even when it seems like things aren't getting better. Integrity means resisting the urge to copy others who make advocacy look easy. And it means forging your own path with your own skills and gifts, whether others find it entertaining or not. And sometimes integrity means speaking up for justice, even though you might lose friends and family members as a result. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> integrity can suck. <laughs> Tell me why you said that right now. Well, because it, it can be really tough, right? Like you may end up you know, the, the, I think the, pref, the preamble to that passage talks about how some people will speak up, for example, on social media, 
You know, somebody will say, Mm -hmm. this is wrong and this is what I believe. And, you know, people might come back and go, I don't come to your social media feed for politics. I come to your social media for cute pictures of your kids or, you know, oh, you're guess you're so angry lately or you're so, and that can be a really hard thing that can lead to a lot of loss, right? So it can be tough, but, but I think if you're truly in your integrity and you're truly like sort of rooted in your values, you know, that's the only way to go forward. Like there's, there's really no choice. So it can be a really tough thing to do that. You know, I think we, superficially think, oh, well, of course, I can be full of integrity. And that's an easy thing Mm -hmm. to do. But in many ways, you get tested, right? In a lot of ways, if you're, if you are called on to stand in your integrity. And I think we all are. Yeah, I mean, no question, especially these days, and it can feel confusing and disorienting. But what I found so anchoring is that part where it's less about how others perceive us because it feels like everyone's the integrity police of everybody else. And that's where a lot of people were feeling shut down, at least a lot of people that I work with. Uh, A lot of leaders are like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to, I don't want to stir. I want to be helped, you know? And so people were feeling frozen, but you said, you know, it's less about how others perceive us and far more how we think about our, or think of ourselves. Yeah. And I was like, it's a lot less disorienting. It's an anchoring statement versus worrying what everybody else thinks. Imagine yeah. that. Yeah. And going, okay, what do I believe? What do I think about myself? How do yeah. I like how I showed up here? Am I shrinking? Am I playing the nice card? Unpack that a little bit more about that part where you said it's far more about what we think about ourselves. Yeah. So the other thing I think it's important to know about the book is the book leans really heavily on introspection, right? On, mm-hmm. on grabbing a journal gra- and really kind of sitting and grappling with things like, what are your gifts? What are the things that incite passion in, in you? And passion can be, I'm really excited about this, or this really makes me angry, right? Like we need to change this. It could, And also being very, very clear on your values, right? Like being really clear about this is the this is what I stand for. This is how I want to move through the world. And I think when you combine those things, that you're very, very clear about what it is that that you are mo- called to or moved to do something in service of, and you're very clear that the reason that you are called to do that is because of values that you hold, then a lot of the other stuff starts to fall away a little bit, right? Like if somebody mm-hmm. starts to say, well, you should have, well, when you're really clear about what you stand for, that can sort of roll off your back a bit because you know that this is what you are called to do. And you can look in the mirror, right? And go, I stood and in my values, I did what I was called to do. This is an action I had to take. And therefore you can go to sleep soundly at night because you have stayed in that. So I think that's what a lot of, that's what I meant about, you know, you do the work to kind of unpack yourself and what you are called to do and what you are here on this earth really to serve, like who you want to help and the other stuff falls away. And, and, you know, sort of related to this is there are so many causes, right? There are so many causes in the world. And what I find can happen is sometimes like, for example, if, you know, anti-discrimination is your thing and you're like, I really need to do something about this. And then there's an environmental say, or I don't know, food insecure, I don't know, something environmental or animals. Let's go with animals. Like there's, there are puppy mills or something and somebody gets mad at you for not speaking out about the puppy mills. Right. Oh yeah. Right. Or so, you know, like that's what happens is, and the truth is 
Like, I would love to be able to take on all the causes in the world, but we can't do that. And so when you mm -hmm. get very, very clear, this is what I am called to do. This is how I'm supposed to move through the world. Then being called out for not speaking about that is not an attack on your character, right? It is about being discerning about where you are going to focus your energy. And so it's a lot easier to sort of respond and say, look, I'm not happy with puppy mills either, right? And my silence doesn't indicate that I, I am for puppy mills. And I'm silent on a lot of things, which bothers me. But that doesn't necessarily mean that. And you can do that with sort of a clear, a clearer conscience. Absolutely. I, yeah, it does require we, in the IFS community, the internal family systems community, we talk about the U-turn, the Y-O-U-turn, the oh, introspection yeah. that you talk about. And that that's what it is. And so when you get the dings, when you get the the little attacks or the challenges, in the end, it's it's an inside game. Did I stand? Yeah. And if I need to change or shift, and we could take ownership of that. But I think this help this also reduces burnout, and it helps with endurance to stay the course. So yeah. thank you for those words. I, I I really value them. And another quality that you identified in your book that is a one that I've been rumbling with a lot lately is the quality of kindness. And you yeah. wrote. To, this is this is another one that you a big U-turn to advocate for others in an honorable way. We need to be able to look at ourselves in the mirror and like who looks back. Being a part of change is an inside game. We can't be a part of healing the collective if we're not doing our own healing. Mm. Walk us through your connection of honorable advocacy and how we're kind to ourselves. There's, I guess, two parts to that. There's the kindness to others and there's the kindness to ourselves. And the kindness right. to other pa others part is is probably the trickiest part, I think, especially in, in the times that we are in right now, right? Mm -hmm. Probably within the last, say, five or six years, it has become very much an us versus them and how dare you. And and if somebody disagrees with you, then they're evil, right? Or they're they're bad, they're soulless, they're whatever, right? Like we, we get to the point where we just write a person off. And the lesson for me in this book is the person who probably gives the most wisdom around this in this book is a dear friend of mine, Asha Dornfest, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. is a, she's a political activist in her hometown of Portland, Oregon. She does a lot around politics, which let's face it, politics is fraught with unkindness in a lot of ways. And she is one of those people who literally you're in her, you're in her orbit and it, you just release, right? She's a very calm person. She's very easygoing. She's never has, never, ever, ever has a negative thing to say about anybody. And so I asked her about kindness and I said, thinking honestly, that she would say, well, I mean, that's just who I am, right? I, I you know, I, I'm just raised to be kind and that's who I am. I didn't expect what she said, which was that kindness was a tool of her resistance. And she says that the truth is that they, and I'm using air quotes here, right? They want us to fight. They want us to polarize. They want it to be us versus them, blue versus red, right? Like conservative versus liberal. They want that. And my they want to fight. They want they want to fight. They want the fight, right? And she says, and my being kind is is an intentional act, intentional stance to say, I don't buy into that. We are humans. We are all interconnected. And yes, of course I want to shift mindsets, but part of that means that I'm not going to to 
to act in a way where I'm using the tools of the oppressor, right? Like I'm not going to be unkind because I think that people are being unkind to me that you can never, it's the Audre Lorde quote, right? Like the tools of the oppressor will never be, you know, can never be used against the oppressor. And so she says that she, she's not a pushover. Like she's not going to allow herself to be abused or, you know, allow abusive behavior. She'll walk away, but, and she'll, or, or she'll, you know, establish a boundary, but she's never going to be unkind. And it is a, a way that she has decided is going to move to. And that was very different for me because I think, you know, my idea of kindness before I spoke to her was sort of the, when they go low, we go high kind of, well, we're better. I'm better than that person. Right. Not that mm. I, I love that quote, but there's a certain thing about, well, if I'm going to be kind because I'm a better person than you. And that's not what it was about for her. It's, I'm going to be kind because I'm going to stop that part of the oppression, Dehum right? And the, the dehumanization, dehumanization is what yes. I, what she was talking about. I, I underlined that in the book too. I underlined everything yeah. she was saying too. For sure. So, I mean, so that was really, so that's one thing. So that's one aspect of kindness. The other about self-compassion mm -hmm. was something that was triggered by another person I interviewed. Her, her name is Valerie Kaur. She's a sick S-I-K-H, American activist. And she said to me something that was both horrifying and very freeing. And it was that we are never going to get to the end of what we're fighting for. We're never going to get to full justice. It's not going to happen in our lifetimes. People have been fighting this march way before us and people will continue to fight after us. And I was like, that is the most depressing thing ever. And But what she was saying was, and so in order for us to be able to have longevity in the work, longevity in the march, we have to take care of ourselves. We have to be able to take the baton from this, the generations before us and carry it as long as we can so that we are able to pass the baton on for the generations after us. Similarly, mm. Zuri Adele said, you know, from her, self-compassion is not just about, you know, the oxygen mask analogy that we always hear, right? But it's about stopping to gather the energy, right? To gather the kind of energy, the mindfully gathering of the energy to go forth and be active and advocate again, right? Like it's about, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to gather the energy and now I'm going to push forward. Valerie Kaur also says, listen to the midwife, right? Breathe and push is what we say when we give birth. It's not, you know, push, push, push and don't breathe, right? Like there's, there's both. And so there's this sort of rhythm that has to happen and in order for us to have longevity in the work. And that rhythm necessarily mm. means we have to be kind and we have to be self-compassionate or we're just not going to be able to do it. Like we'll burn out. But I, I repeatedly hear people say, Rebecca, you say all this stuff, you give me the research, sure. but parts of me feel like I'm asking to be hurt or I've just as yeah. part saying they don't deserve me being kind. Mm, right. Yeah. And I said, this is a selfish act. It's it is 100%. for your well-being. It is not connected to letting them off the hook. It's not about accountability or boundaries. It is about staying aligned to your humanity. And if, you know, as soon as that slippery slope to say, well, I'm just going to give them what they gave and we're gone. We've lost it. We're unmoored. And man, has that been hard. It's the to hardest. Hold on to. It's the hardest. It's absolutely the hardest. But you know, the way, again, Asha talks about it, she's like, you know, her goal, whenever she is speaking to somebody who holds an opposing view, 
of, mm-hmm. to the, her, she goes, my goal is not to convince them that I'm right. My, she goes, that may be other people's goal. It's not my goal. She goes, my goal is to just open the door a bit for them to understand a possibility of a slightly different or broader perspective on the issue, right? She goes, if I have somebody walk away going, huh, I hadn't considered that part, that for her feels like victory. And if Mm -hmm. all you do is you're an idiot, right? When you're talking to somebody, you're never going to even get to that part, right? And so for her, kindness is that tool of being able to go, you know, maybe, maybe consider this part, maybe consider this and listening and sort of being compassionate, like, well, why is it you think that way? What is it about your experience, your culture, your what that leads you to hold this stance? And then I'm going to share mine. And then maybe, maybe both of us will walk away with a, hmm, you know, I had not realized that, or maybe I need to look into this further. For her, that's her goal in her, in her political activism, which is a really interesting way to think of it because I've never thought of it that way before. I was like, no, they're wrong. I'm right. Right. right? Like, yeah. Well, that still may be true. And yes, <laughs> right. Exactly. And how do, how do we show up in those spaces? Yeah. And cause that's part of staying true to our values. No trust is earned as we've learned from Brene's research. No trust is earned without connection in those small moments. Absolutely. And, and then if we don't like ourselves, how can we give that? So how do, if we are not living in saying, I got to be kind to myself and I'm doing the best I can, where do I need to grow yep. and have that compassion? It isn't about making us vulnerable to being hurt, which is what we've absorbed in this yeah. very toxic culture we're in. So thank you for unpacking that. And you touched on one other emotion and that's anger. Mm-hmm. You had this other sentence that stood out to me and I think it's so important to destigmatize anger, especially in those who are not white and male. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so you wrote, I'm pro anger. I find it an incredibly motivating emotion. Mm. Here's this is really powerful. Yet anger left unfettered can be incredibly corrosive and lead to unthinking actions you later regret. And these words brought me to January 6th, which we're coming up on the one year anniversary right. of that and all that led up to it and the unfettered anger we witnessed play out before us at our nation's capital. And I'm curious, how has this kind of unfettered anger impacted your capacity to find joy in your own activism and life? In my experience, it is, oh, it is rare that I have ever lashed out, even when I'm right, and felt good about it later on, right? Like, mm. you know, even when I'm right, even when I'm 100%, absolutely, that person is wrong, I am 100% right. If I react in fury, I mean, I honestly can't think of a time where, with time passing, I went, yeah, totally, that was awesome. Like, usually I'm like, I probably could have handled that better. Um, but I, I think also anger is very motivating because that's what that's what inspires us to activate in the first place, right? So the question becomes, I mean, you know, and that's this is the trick about activism and advocacy, right? The question, it's a chess game. So mm. you feel that rage or you feel that, and then you have to take a beat and go, okay, what is the most effective way that I can make change? And more often than not, just reacting in anger or reacting in fury does not move 
does not move any closer to what you're trying to get to. It, you have to take a beat, you know? So that's, I mean. What do you do when you take a beat? What would we see if you were taking a beat? So recently, and this had nothing to do with activism, but recently I was at a, a restaurant and somebody was less than great at their job, let's just say, and it made me angry. And I was like, I was su- sort of surprised at the fury that sort of came up in me. And I remember I like, and and she was just downright rude. Like there was, this, this person was just rude. And I was asking for help and she was just rude. And I, I mean, you know, that's the thing about anger sometimes, right? Like it just, it, it it's in flames, right? It's just, boom. And what I did in that moment was I said, I'll handle it myself, thanks. And I turned and walked away. And I was very, very, I actually walked away thinking, I'm sure she probably was like, well, that customer was horrible. But I, I removed myself because I knew if I really told her about herself, it was kind of, you know, bad things could have happened. And let's just say I had, let's just say like I said, give me your manager, that's not happening, right? And she lost her job. Let's just say that had happened. Like, like whatever fleeting satisfaction I would have had in that moment, I would have walked away and gone, what if she's a single parent? What if, you know, like, like I would have sat there and gone, how badly did I ruin this person's life? Right. And so for me, just turning and going, that's fine. I'll handle it. And I walked away. Like, I, I think to myself, she probably went home, even if she thought I was a horrible person to just walk away. There's probably a part of her that's like, I'm not sure what I did there. Right. Like there's a part of some self-reflection that she, I hope, may have been moved to do, right? So for me, when I have feel that flash, it's very, my best thing to do is to just remove myself, right? Or say, I really can't talk about this right now because I don't want to say anything that I regret and I don't want to say anything that you don't deserve, right? So give me a, give me a beat, right? That said, when it comes, like, you know, if we bring it back to activism, like there's lot, like for me, discrimination is just like I get infuriated by like infu- it is definitely my thing, right? Like I get infuriated in at all forms of discrimination, right? Anti LGBTQ, anti Asian, like anti Black, like it doesn't matter. It makes me bananas, right? But that fury is what makes me go what can i do like how do, what is my own what is my own place and why this is happening like what's my own fault what how can i hold myself accountable and how can i do something mm-hmm. to help and so that's why i say i'm pro anger because that fury is often the it's the spark right it's the thing that makes that that will ignite you to make some change so it's a data point. It's a data For point, sure. not just an emotion. It's like when you when you take the beat and go, oh, hello, Fury. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> You're here again and again and again. <laughs> What's going on? Right. And sometimes it's like, it's just been really rough yeah. and it's hard to absorb. And I need to close the laptop. I need to not be on technology yeah. or watching the news. I need to be with my people, my music, my journals or whatever it is. I'm just thinking how much, I mean, and again, it's, when you are holding trauma in your system, that's where it gets really hard, right? Yeah. Is is to take that beat. And I would like to say, like, I sound really enlightened right now, <laughs> but but this is something I struggle with. And like for what, like for social media, that's a great one, right? Somebody's wrong on the internet, and I don't know how many tweets <laughs> I've typed 
and then not hit publish. <laughs> I don't know how many tweets I've typed, hit publish, and then turn back around and unpublished it, right? Like, that's not who I want to be. So, so to be very clear, I sound like this very wise sage, but it is something that I for sure struggle with. And I think we all do. It's the, the trick is sort of to be mindful of it. Well, I, 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 I think it mindfulness, but also it's very human when you care deeply, yeah. you're going to hurt deeply. Yeah. yeah. And I, that's a part of the gig, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's just, it really is taking a lot. And that's why I love, again, the constant U-turn and, and the tools in your book, just to help concretize this practice so we can run the marathon. And you talked about being a wise sage, which you are, we, you and I, you and I share the same, we, you, we share the same birthday and I just joined you Do. in the fifties. Yes. And um, yes. Welcome. And, and so many people resist birthdays because of fear of aging. Mm. And uh, you've also been pretty open about your rumble with aging and, yeah. you know, pushing back on how our culture advocates for fighting the signs of aging. Yeah. Um, and we're also gearing up to that time of the year where everyone talks about diets and changing our outsides yeah. to feel better on our insides. Uh, it gets to a peak. Yes. yes. So I'd love for you to, to share what's shifted inside of you that's allowed you to find more joy in aging instead of trying to fight it the way culture says we should. You know, the more I work on aging, and I do, I'm 54 now, right? So I work on aging. I recently just let my hair go silver. I'm like, it is something that I think about a lot. And for me, I think about like when I was, when I was 10, I wanted to be 15, right? And when I turned <laughs> 15, like the last thing I ever wanted to be was 10 again, right? Or when I turned 21, I didn't want to be 15 again, right? So what 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 switches that suddenly were like oh i wish i was 30 like 30 and so that was one thing i'm like there's something weird that happens where suddenly that happens and that doesn't make sense the other thing is i will tell you my grandmother lived to 102 years old right i had a oh, grand wow. i had another grandfather i my the other two grandparents two other grandparents who lived well into their 90s right so i come from a line of long livers right and so if you think about that, like at 54, if I, assuming I don't get hit by a bus, right? If I live healthy, I have like my life again to live, right? Plus also think of all the medical advances that'll happen in that time. So I can live to 110, right? Who knows? So wow. except now I don't have to learn how to walk or talk. I don't have to go to school. I've already done that, right? Like just think about all that life ahead, where I don't have to learn the basics anymore. Like that to me is thrilling. Ooh. That's that's thrilling. So why would we get caught up in age? There's just so much more that we could potentially do. You know, you, you know I'm like- the, Oh, this is a powerful reframe. <laughs> like when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, cause I have relatives too that have lived almost to a hundred. I've been in this weird mode of like, what's our retirement plan and our investments sure. and what kind of insurance. And I mean, it's not bad to be doing that, but my husband says I've gotten a little laser focused on it. <laughs> and he's like, can we just have an evening to chill? And I'm like, let's go through our budget, you know, and figure out their investments. And he's like, Oh my gosh. But you know, but that, that scarcity and, and I think there's that I me mean, for me, at least is that element of always feeling I was trying to catch up or get yeah. ahead. And that when you say that, that way, I just felt this settling in my system, like God willing, right? That yeah. if we have the chance to live a vital long life, that's a lot of without having to go through middle school again. Right? 
Exactly. Um, and all the things like, thank you. And think about like, just like medical advances, like what looks right. like, I mean, I don't know about you, but when my mother was 54, she was ancient, right? Like in my mind, right? right? Like she was right? ancient. Oh. Now I'm here and I'm like, this does not feel ancient no. at all. So, no, not at all. But now maybe 75 will. By, by the time I'm 75, that's going to feel like, pfft, that feels like 35 used to feel, right? You know, who I knows? Love it. So there's all kinds of, the, the potential is so huge of what lies ahead. So yeah, I don't, I'm, I don't buy, I'm very pro-aging, honestly. I really, really am. I'm not even anti-aging. I am pro-aging. Let's do this. Let's go. All in. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. So I want to wrap up asking you how your definition of success has changed as you age and after all you've experienced. Oh, good Lord. Well, it's not, I mean, when I was in my twenties, it was definitely the stuff, right? It was the, For the sure. car and the money and the, now it's about, it's a cross between honestly, and it's what the book is about, right? It's a cross between cultivating joy, which is deeper than happiness, right? Like I'm not talking right. about just having happy days, but cultivating yep. that sort of joy, which is tied closer to meaning and purpose, right? You got it. Yeah. And how to be of service. Like how can I mm. help? How can I help people along the way? Those two things, even as I don't ask for help, right? As I said at the top, right? How can I be of service and how can I have, and if I am living a life where I can say I have the capability of continuing to do that and I'm still curious and learning about how to do that, man, that's success. I love it. So when you take a look around at your life right now, yeah, is this what you thought you'd be doing today? No, but this is better. <laughs> this is way better for sure. For sure. In what ways? Well, you know, I was a very successful lawyer for a while there and I was making lots of money and I was miserable. And now I'm doing work that I love. I work with people I love. I get to be on podcasts with people who are amazing and what a gift, like what a gift, what a gift that is. It's it. Yes, I am. I am full of success just for that. It really is. It is a wonderful life, as they say. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you? So the easiest way is probably to go to my website, karenwalren.com. We'll get you there. You'll see a funny word that says chukalunks. Don't worry, you're at the right place. But if you go to karenwalren.com, you will find links to the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter, all of that stuff. So please come visit me there. Absolutely. And make sure you get your copy of the Lightmakers Manifesto, How to Work for Change Without Losing Your Joy. It's a great holiday gift. It's it a great is. gift to give in the business community, your family. And there's so much that's accessible to everyone. So thank you for showing up and writing that book. And thank you for being you. I really appreciate you, your leadership and your heart, Karen. Absolutely. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. I've seen many leaders over the years scoff at activism or look down on it or shame it like it was beneath them, seeing it as unruly and too impassioned. But when we do not value activism, we do harm. Now, whether you may be dismissing your own activism because you feel like that doesn't fit you because you're not doing enough or you feel like activism is too loaded a word, it's important to reclaim the word for your own good and the greater good. As Karen notes, we don't have to stand in front of tanks to take a stand for the change we desire to see. So how has your view of activism shifted after listening to this conversation with Karen? And are you clear on your values and what drives you? 
If not, what actions do you need to take to get crystal clear on your values? And what practices can you put in place so your anger informs you, but doesn't overwhelm you or take you out? Reclaiming activism and owning your own activism means staying the course of your vision and mission while still doing the inner work to increase your capacity for vulnerability, self-leadership, and hope. This is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries, and starting to really own your activism. Navigating the inevitable controversy can change your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for the weekly Unburdened email, find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.